Today's episode is brought to you by our company, Sales Schema. Sales Schema helps agencies and B2B service companies build a reliable business development system through tasteful and targeted outreach. To learn more about us and check out our latest video training, go to saleschema.com slash take charge. You know, for me, I realized that I was kind of always very goal driven in business and in life. I had goals that I kept putting in front of myself. I said, oh, I want to graduate from college. Then I check. I want to go to law school. Check. I want to start a business. Check. I want to grow the business to at least $10 million. Check. I want to sell the business. Check. And I sort of got to the point where I sold the business. And then I was like, what do I do now? In a way, I'd kind of been in the rat race and I was constantly, there's always some cheese right in front of me (laughs) for me to capture. But suddenly when the cheese wasn't there, then I started, it gave me this sort of existential crisis. Like, what is my point in life? What should I be doing now? How do I spend my time? Welcome to the Digital Agency Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Englander. Today's episode is brought to you by our company, Sales Schema. Are you tired of relying on unpredictable referrals to grow your agency or B2B service company? Yes, Dan, I am. So maybe you hired a salesperson or a lead generation company and your efforts failed miserably. So here's the problem. When it comes to selling agency services and other consultative offers, cold outreach doesn't work. And that's because there's so much competition and noise. And the scarce resource is not differentiators, at least not with the prospects who don't know you yet. So what's the scarce resource? It's actually trust. And at Sales Schema, we've worked with over 100 agencies and B2B service companies since 2014 to help generate qualified meetings and keep the pipeline full so our clients can achieve their dreams. And I've put everything we've learned into my book, Relationship Sales at Scale. And to learn more and pick up the book, you can do that by going to saleschema.com slash R-S-A-S. Again, that's saleschema.com slash R-S-A-S. Today, I'm very excited to welcome David Ronitsky. David is the founder of 3Q Digital, now part of Dept. And David founded 3Q out of a coffee shop in Pacifica, California, and scaled the business to more than 500 employees, managing more than $2 billion of ad spend annually. David is now the founder of Agency Shift, a coaching company that helps agency founders successfully sell their businesses. Without further ado, please give it up for David Ronitsky. David, great to have you on the show. Thanks, man. Great to be here. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So you you have a very interesting perspective in that you have sold an agency, a single agency, three times, and I'm sure there's there's a lot that went into that and into selling 3Q and getting it from what you describe as like working at a coffee shop to I think 500 plus employees, if I have that right, or well into the thousands. How do you pull yeah. something like that off? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's kind of a, a loaded question. I mean, I, I guess there's two questions there. One is maybe how do you go from zero to 500? The other was how do you go from yeah. selling the selling the agency three times? The zero to 500 one is, I feel like I see there's all these like books and master classes and just kind of chatter online about how to grow your business to a million, your agency to a million dollars, to $10 million, how to master sales secrets of a giant agency. And I think that for me, it really is a lot of basic blocking and tackling. It's simple things like just hiring people that are smarter than you, creating a culture where you look at long-term client success and not short-term revenue or profit gain. For me, one of the things that helped me a lot in growing the agency was creating thought leadership. So kind of like what you're doing with this podcast, but I really always tried to create content, whether it was in the form of a, a blog post or a speech or or PowerPoint even, that was differentiated and advanced knowledge that I could share with people. 
So I think that that helped us scale the business because people saw us as true experts. And I think the other thing that helped us a lot was I always like this, this concept, which I did not invent, which says, if you can't be number one in a category, create a category you can be number one in. And when I started the business, I said, you know, I'm not going to be the number one agency. I'm not going to be the number one, probably not the number one digital marketing agency. It's possible I become the number one search engine marketing agency, but it's, it's definitely the case that I could become the number one search engine marketing agency that services Silicon Valley companies. And so I really sort of drilled in on a niche that I thought we could be number one in. Um, and when you combine that with really good thought leadership, with a great culture of hiring people smarter than you and caring about customer success in the long term, it kind of all works out in a scaling business. And I mean, I'm, I've obviously simplified this into like a three minute answer, but I, I really don't think that, um, I mean, you know, you have to, you have to be good at all those things to be successful, but there's not any sort of super secret sauce. There's not some, secret formula that I've locked away in a vault that says, here's how to go from zero to 500 employees. And it, what I what I just kind of said in the last couple of minutes is pretty much the answer. And so hopefully that saves your listeners from spending $5,000 on a masterclass that's ultimately going to sell you the same thing, yeah. same advice. In terms of how did I sell the business three times, I would say uh, maybe in this instance, it's better to be lucky than good. There was definitely not a plan early on to have that much M&A activity. But what basically happened was, you know, I founded the business in 2008, scaled it over six years using all the techniques I just talked about to the point that in about six years, I was at about 120 employees. And I started getting a lot of inbound calls from potential acquirers, sometimes investment banks, sometimes just companies. And a friend of mine had given me the advice of saying, if you get a lot of inbound calls, hire an investment banker, have the investment banker just take all the calls and continue working on the business. And if something looks sounds interesting, well, he or she will alert you, but otherwise just keep doing what you're doing on a daily basis. So that's what I did. And it got to the point around late 2014 that the investment banker called me and said, listen, I've got like six or seven companies that are all credible acquirers who have reached out. I think we should just see what happens if we have conversations with them. So I said, yeah, let's do it. So we talked to those six companies and we can talk about this later, but we did not run a full process, which, which means going out and talking to 50 or 60 companies, most of them have never heard of you. We just talked to the companies that had reached out to us. And we ended up getting three offers. And one offer was a lot stronger than the other two. It was from a publicly traded company in Texas called Hart Hanks. And we found out that they had been a marketing services business for really for 100 years. They had been doing like newspapers in Texas and like the turn of the century and making revenue from advertising in, in county newspapers. And they had turned it into a pretty big marketing business, but they didn't have a digital marketing presence. They really needed us. So they bid, I would say, probably significantly over what we thought the market would be for the business. And we sold to them. And I thought, this is great. This is the last stop for 3Q Digital. It's a great fit. And the deal, by the way, was, as is common with M&A deals, some money up front, and then some money based on an earnout, which is a... Uh, performance incentive over a series of years to hit certain financial metrics. So we signed the deal, started working towards the earnout. A couple of years into the, the earnout, which was a three-year earnout, the company CEO came to me and said, you know, can we modify the earnout? Can we have an extra year to pay the earnout? Because we were on track to hit 100% of the earnout, which I'm not sure if they thought we were going to get or not, but we were. And we agreed to that. And then about six months after that, they said, you know, hey, can we have another year maybe to pay you? And at that point, we were like, yeah, I mean this is, doesn't seem like it's going down the right path. So we had a lot of discussions with them and they decided that the best outcome would be for them to sell us to someone else. So we had another investment banker 
ran another sales process. Unfortunately, this time, we didn't get really any credible offers. And we can sort of, we could talk about why that was the case. I mean, I think generally speaking with M&A, you need to have sort of a lot of momentum and a lot of positivity around the business to get a deal done because people are naturally skeptical. If some, something's for sale, I'm sure we've all done this as consumers. If someone's selling this house, there must be something wrong with it, right? So that's kind of what happened in, in this instance that we're for sale, but you know, people were like, why are they unloading this business after only owning it for three years? There must be something wrong. Didn't get any credible offers. And so at that point, I went back to my co-founders and I said, let's just try to buy this thing back. Let's make an offer because no one else is making a good offer. So we came up with an offer. We raised the money from a bank and we bought the company back. And at that point, we're like, all right, hooray, we're free. We're going to be independent forever. We made t-shirts that said 3Q Digital Independent again with fireworks and everything. And we went along our merry way. And then about six months after that, we started getting calls again from potential acquirers. We were having a lot of success in the business. At that point, we were up to about, I think, 225 people. So we'd gone from about 125 to 225. And so we did the same thing. We hired a banker. We just talked to the people who had talked to us. And again, we got a couple of offers that we thought were really you know, above what we thought we could get for the business and that were also really strategic. So we ended up selling to two um, private equity companies out of Chicago. One was called PSP Partners and the other is called Erie Street Capital. Hope I got their names right. And you know, we started working with them on scaling business. At some point about maybe three to six months after we started working with them, I realized that um, the business had probably scaled beyond my expertise. We were approaching 300 people. We had offices. I think we had 11 offices in the US, as well as um, one in Singapore. And in in Ireland, we were managing about over $2 billion of media, mostly on Google for clients. And so I actually stepped aside and uh, we brought in a professional CEO who was fantastic, who took us to even higher levels. And this, the new CEO, in addition to the, the new CFO we brought in and the new financers, scaled the company to, as you mentioned, over 500 people. And then last year, we got an offer to, to join, I guess, merge with a company called Dept out of Holland. So that company is like a 3,500-person company, very successful in Europe, does a lot of creative work, very different than 3Q being performance marketing, US-based. But it was, it's hopefully going to be one of those situations where you have peanut butter meets chocolate and you, you create Reese's peanut butter cups. That's a very long answer, answer to your short question. I, I think I'm probably the only person, one of the only people who has actually sold to a strategic acquirer to private equity and to a holding company. And it's been a, quite a learning experience along the way. Yeah, I can yeah. imagine that there's so many things to kind of dig into there. I think my first question is, can you talk about your motivations at different stages, right? Because you started out, it sounds like as a solo consultant, like a lot of us have working in a coffee shop. Not everybody wants to go past that point, right? Some people are fine being there or maybe building a small team. Other, and then, so, you know, you're, you've scaled up to dozens and then eventually hundreds of employees. But then you reached a point where you're like, okay, the next level is above my head. I don't have interest in being a CEO at this, this level of business. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like what made you decide what you were going to do when, if that's not too crazy of a question to ask? That's so, a great question. So when I started the agency, my basic motivation was I never wanted to work for someone else ever again. And I said that because I am really bad at office politics and I always lose. So I would always come into a company with like, let's do what's best for the clients. Let's do what's best for the company. And there'd always be someone else who was very good at sort of Game of Thrones or House of Cards, like playing politics behind the scene. And I would always get burned. In some cases, I got fired or I didn't, you know, I, I got responsibility taken away from me, or I wasn't invited to the important meetings. When I started my agency, I was like, whatever I do, I just need to make this sustainable enough so that I can work for myself and make my own decisions. 
And I really sort of, from day one of starting the agency, I, I was like, I want to work for myself and I want to do things the way I've always wanted to do it. So I would do things like I did unlimited PTO before it was cool or unlimited work from home. Or, you know, we did something called 3Q 3% where we gave back 3% of our time to communities, to nonprofits. So I was just trying to sort of do my own thing and never work for someone else again. At the point that we got the first offer for the business, the business had scaled to the point where it was pretty clear that it was worth a pretty good chunk of money, certainly an amount that I never thought I would ever be able to get or build myself. And at that point, a lot of my motivation changed to sort of de-risking. So I've always sort of said to people, it's better to sell too early than too late. And psychologically, I felt like if I had an opportunity to sell the business for an amount that would be life-changing for my family, and I said no, and then the company went south, it would be something that would be burning at me my, my whole rest of my life. Now, to be clear, it wasn't all about the money because I was really concerned that whatever whoever we sold to, it needed to be a sale that was right for clients, for employees, and for shareholders. But it certainly got to the point where I was sort of losing sleep over missing out on, on the opportunity. So that was the motivation the second time around. The third time around, I mean, I do think I was getting a little bit burnt out. And I do think, I guess the second time around, when I, in 2019, when we sold to the private equity companies, I think I realized, and maybe I didn't realize it at the time, but I realized the, the adage, I think it's a Marshall Goldsmith, I think that's his name, who said, what got you here won't get you there. And, you know, I really sort of came to the conclusion that when you think about founders of agencies or any business for that matter, there are stage agnostic leaders and stage specific leaders. And the stage specific leader is someone who's great at some level of the business's growth. Maybe it's zero to 50 people, maybe it's 500 people to a thousand people. But then somewhere at other parts of the business, they're not really the right person for that job. And a stage agnostic leader is someone who can literally take the company from one to 500 people and, and be as effective on day one as, as he or she is on year 15. And so I kind of came to the conclusion that I really enjoy and I'm good at building the business from zero to 150, maybe 200. But as we got beyond that scale, I wasn't as interested. And frankly, I wasn't as good at running the company. So when we sold the second time, I was sort of looking a little bit for a life preserver, if you will. We, we sold to private equity folks who had a, a wide range of experience, ranging from running agencies to working at McKinsey to even being senior government officials in the U.S. government. And I thought, these are the kind of people I need to sort of take us to the next level. And they did. I mean, we, in terms of our most important metrics, I mean, we had massive, massive improvements in metrics after we brought in the expert leadership and financial support. And after I sort of moved aside to more of an advisory role. So, so it's very different at every stage of the process, but it worked out. Yeah, that's interesting. I'd love to kind of dig into that a little bit more. You know, Amazon kind of has their famous day one versus day two thinking and their whole thing is about being entrepreneurial and always having day one thinking being the MO, even though, you know, they're multi-billion dollar massive company and so on. How do you feel about that? So like, how do the skill sets and the people need to change at that 500 person level where it's going into the McKinsey's and government officials of the world? Like, what are they doing differently? And why does that matter at that stage? It's so different. I mean, I think in the early days of the business, typically, most early stage businesses are dealing with startups or small companies. And in many cases, you're dealing with the founder of the client. And for this founder, every single dollar is make or break, do or die. Sort of like it could be like me, like if I don't make this successful, I have to go back and work for the man and I'm going to do everything in my power not to. And so 
at that early stage, you have to be incredibly responsive and scrappy and recognize that clients are going to come and go very quickly. Some are going to make it, some aren't. You're going to have all sorts of different personalities. Everyone's going to call you at 11 p.m. and expect that you get up, get back to them by 11, 15 p.m. When you get to the 500 person stage, typically speaking, you're dealing with enterprise clients. And so I think that generally enterprise clients are more concerned about loss aversion than they are about gain. And so if you're, let's say you have Hewlett Packard as a client, they would rather work with a very safe, big agency that's going to move slowly and not make any mistakes than work with a swift startup agency that might increase their ROI by 2x, but might also make a mistake and publish an ad that offends the government of Singapore, and then Hewlett Packard gets loses a $10 billion account. So the clients that you have are different at that 500-person stage. The people that you hire are different because, I mean, when you hire people in the zero to 50 stage range, you have a lot of people who are maybe aspirational founders themselves or just are hungry to sort of work hard and work on a lot of different things and learn fast. Someone who joins an agency at 500 people is not looking to replicate that most likely. They're looking for somewhat of a comfortable job. They may be very excited to work on big accounts and they may be, they're, they're very, very talented folks, but they're very different. So, you know, I think that there's a book called Traction, but it's also uh, known as part of the, the Entrepreneur's Operating System, EOS. And they talk about how at every business, at every business, you need two people at the top. You need a visionary and you need an integrator. The visionary, which is kind of a pompous term, is the person who's thinking, here's where we need to go in the next three years. And the integrator is kind of the person who puts out the dumpster fires, make sure you hit your margins, et cetera. I think that the visionary role is very important in that zero to 50 stage when you're breaking things and you're trying to convince someone to give you a chance and you're trying to sort of position yourself as a leader. When you're at the 500 person level, it's still important to have a visionary, but it's probably more important to have an integrator who can actually turn the aircraft carrier when it needs to be turned and, and build a professional organization that's going to win those big clients. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. That's, that's a good answer. And, and kind of back to the focus on acquisition here. One thing you mentioned is, is it's better to sell early than late. Can you talk about the Star Wars exchange you had with your friend? Uh, yeah. that. <laughs> As a quick break, I wanted to let you know about our newest video training, How to Take Charge of Your Agency's Future Revenue. By the end of this training, you're going to learn how we get two to five qualified appointments every week using tasteful and highly targeted email outreach. That might not sound like a lot, but once you understand the outreach napkin math, you're going to learn how this can lead to massive scale for your agency or B2B service company. In addition to that, you're going to learn the six steps for successful outreach campaigns based on everything that we've learned from working with more than 100 agencies since 2014. You're going to get the complete agency outreach tech stack so you understand the right tools for getting the right results. And you're going to see agency to brand email examples and get inspiration from high converting campaigns. So to get this 30 minute training, all you need to do is go to saleschema.com slash take charge. Again, that's saleschema.com slash take charge. Yes. Yes, I don't know if he calls it the Star Wars Exchange, but yeah, I had a friend who was another agency founder and I called him up. This is probably 2019, I think. And I said, how's business going? He goes, oh man, business is incredible. We're growing by 50% year over year. We're about to win our biggest client ever. It is just a slam dunk. And I said, that's congrats, man. That's amazing. I said, have you ever thought about selling? He goes, selling? No, I'm, we're going to grow by 50% this year. Why would I possibly sell? It's crazy. 
And so I said, all right, well, I mean, that's definitely one perspective. And a year later, COVID hit, and he was largely focused on the retail world. And at least initially in COVID, uh, retail got hit really hard and his business just plummeted. And he actually, I think we had a call and he was like, oh man, why didn't I sell? <laughs> it's up 50%. And so, you know, the analogy that I used was, and this is maybe dating myself, but in Star Wars at the end of the first movie, you know, there's a scene where I think his name is Grand Moff Tarkin or something, the, the admiral who, who runs the Death Star and a, uh, an underling comes up to him and says, uh, sir, the uh, rebels have discovered a weakness in the base. I think we should evacuate. And the, the admiral says, evacuate in our moment of triumph. And then 30 seconds later, the test blows up. And so that's kind of the, the Star Wars analogy, which is that a lot of people, you know, when things are going really well, they can't imagine selling because they would be leaving money on the table. What they may not realize is that things aren't always going to be going well. And not all businesses grow exponentially. There are ups and downs. And sometimes there are downs that get to the point where you can't recover. And it's something to consider when you're thinking about selling your business. I mean, it's that, it's that de-risking that I talked about that you have to consider. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And same goes with the crypto world and, and everything, all the other. Yeah, uh, I personally know that as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's one where I said, sell crypto in our moment of triumph it didn't, didn't work out for me. Yeah, yeah, lots of people as well. One thing I'd love to talk about is, can you talk a little bit about how the team received the news of these these different acquisitions at different stages? And is there anything that you improved upon or did differently from one to two to the merger and everything? Yeah. Well, I would say, first of all, before we actually sold 3Q, we did acquire another agency, a smaller SEM agency. That was in 2014. And we learned from that experience. It was sort of an obvious learning, but we acquired the company. We made an announcement. We said, hey, everyone, let's have a party. Kumbaya. And then we didn't change any seating up. We had our team sit in one corner and their team sit in another corner. And we started to get a lot of competition and not in a good way. It was like, oh, the, the team from iSearch Media, that's the company we acquired. Oh, they don't, they're not as good at doing X. And the iSearch Media team would say, oh, the 3Q team, they don't know what they're doing with Y. And we really realized that, you know, you, that you have to, as quickly as possible, bring co the companies together and stop the tribalism. And so one of the lessons that we did when we, when we sold the Hard Hanks, first time we sold, was we tried to create quick shared wins for both Hard Hanks and for us. So we created teams that combined people from Hard Hanks and people from 3Q on a project that might be a pretty simple project, but it's something that they could present to the whole company and say, look what we did together. So that was sort of a, a lesson. I would say that that generally speaking, in mergers and acquisitions, there's always sort of two fears that are omnipresent. One is that employees are going to freak out. And the other is that clients are going to freak out. And my experience has been that in both instances, both sets of, of constituents are open to be proven wrong about any concerns they have about the merger. So there's always going to be nervousness. Then no matter who's acquiring who, whatever, whatever the situation, humans by nature are afraid of change. This is like built into our DNA. But I would say that after two or three months, assuming things haven't fallen off the rails and things are bad, people are actually pretty comfortable with, with getting used to the new situation. I think people are, I think are typically more concerned about clients than they are about employees. They're always concerned that you tell a client that you're being acquired by someone else, that that's going to suddenly set off an RFP or a, just a, a termination. And most of the contracts that we sign and probably most of the contracts that agencies that are listening to this sign have a change of control provision in them, which says in the event of a change of control, we as the client have the right to terminate this contract immediately. The bigger the client, the more likely that clause is going to be in there. 
But in my experience of having sold the company three times and having several hundred clients who had that ability to opt out, I don't think less than a half percent, you know, did immediately. And maybe we lost some over time, but that was probably just because we weren't providing great results, not because they were just afraid of what the change. So I think not panicking and sort of assuming and, but, you know, I guess the other thing I'll say too, is that, you know, being very communicative is important as well. So whenever we did an acquisition, whether buying or selling, we would always have a town hall. We would walk through all the reasoning for why we did it. In the case where we were being acquired by someone else, we would bring in the acquirer to the town hall. We'd have that person speak. And then we would have a party afterwards where we'd go out for drinks. And, you know, usually people would realize, oh, the guy's not as scary as he sounds. You know, he seems like a nice guy. So that's also something that's important. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it, it, it makes sense because if you're thinking about it from their standpoint, if the results are coming in, it doesn't really matter that much whose name is on the door. <laughs> and if they're not, it's, it's you know, not going to fix anything either. So one one thing I wanted to ask about is, can you talk about what hedonic adaptation has to do with selling your agency? Yeah, yeah, that's hedonic ad- adaptation, I think is something I learned from the uh, Science of Wellbeing course at uh, Yale. That's really the most popular course on Coursera. And the, the concept is basically that there's, they've, I think it's psychologists who have studied people have realized that whatever change happens to you in your life, either something really good or something really bad, you kind of just naturally adjust back to sort of a normal feeling of, of whatever you're feeling is happiness or sadness. So for example, if you win the lottery and you have an extra billion dollars, that's great for about three months. And then you kind of just get used to being a lottery winner. Similarly, if you have something terrible happen to you, if you know, you have a loss of a loved one. Maybe it takes longer than three months, but after a few months of grieving, you come back to your sort of normal state. And so where that relates to the business world is they also call it the hedonic treadmill. There is a tendency to feel like it's whatever money that you have or success that you have, it's never enough. And you always, you know, you might be, you might win a giant client and you feel like, oh my God, this is great. You celebrate, you go out and have a glass of champagne. And then three months later, you're just used to having that giant client. And when it comes to selling your business, where this can become relevant is you might have an offer for, or when you start your business, you might say, you know what? If I sell my business someday for $5 million, I'm going to be so excited because that will give me enough money to retire comfortably and travel the world. And so then you grow your business and suddenly it's worth $5 million and someone makes you an offer for $5 million, But you're sort of already used to sort of that offer level, you're like, you know what, what I really need, in addition to selling my the, the running, retiring around the world is I need to buy a vacation home in Napa. So I actually need $10 million. So then you get to the point where you've grown the business and now it's worth $10 million. And you're thinking like, this is what I said I wanted to, to get to be happy. But, you know, it'd be really nice to fly private instead of first class. So anyways, you never accept just being happy at whatever financial level that you have attained. There's always someone more who has more money than you, there's always a chance to grow your business greater. And it goes back to this notion that if you keep going on this treadmill and you keep wanting more and more, you might get to the point where you miss out on an incredible offer that would have given you incredible financial stability. And suddenly now you have nothing or your your business, you have to keep working at the business for another 20 years versus you could have retired. So I think it's just that notion of sort of like not... I guess knowing when to stop financially and not putting yourself in a situation where it's never enough and that you might miss out on something great. Yeah, that's that's great. Really good perspective on that. And I think with that in mind, 
you know, I tend to see lots of agency owners that want to sell from a negative position or just because they're not happy running the agency. How do you feel about that? Like, how do you approach it in the right way? Is, is it okay to, to do that if you're unhappy selling the agency from your perspective? And what are the alternatives to selling if you're in a position like that? Yeah. First of all, when you talk about selling from a negative position, I mean, I think there's two different ways to interpret that. One is that the agency owner just wants to get out. And the second is that the agency is not doing well. If the agency is not doing well, if the agency is going down in, in revenue or it has some negative trends, it is challenging to sell the agency because ultimately, you know, most agencies are sold on a multiple of profit or EBITDA. And the multiple is given because the acquirer believes that the agency's best days are ahead of them. So if you're doing $5 million of profit in the business, there may be an acquirer out there who was willing to pay you eight times that $5 million or so $40 million for the business. But that's on the assumption that three or four years from now, you're going to be doing $10 million of profit. If your 5 million is, is there because two years ago you did 10 million, one year ago you did seven and a half million, and now you're doing 5 million, you're going to have a different kind of conversation. And, and, you know, people get spooked pretty easily. I mean, when you're talking about shelling out whatever amount of money it is, a million dollars or $40 million, anytime you see a negative trend in the business, that is a challenge for an acquirer. From a perspective of an attitude perspective, if the founder is, is tired, that's not a deal killer, especially if you set yourself up correctly. So one of the things that founders do when they're looking to sell the business and they know that they don't want to continue with the business because they're burnt out is they about a year before they sell, preferably, but if you could even do it six months before you sell, they start to basically make themselves uh, irrelevant in the business. So I describe it as I always say that the job of an entrepreneur is to fire himself from jobs. And that's what a founder needs to do when they're looking to sell and they don't want to be with the business. So especially with smaller businesses, it's often the case that the founder is the chief sales officer, the chief client services officer, the chief operating officer. And you can't sell a business if the business revolves around you and you're not going to continue afterwards. So what you have to do is you have to delegate and truly delegate to other people. You know, when I sold the business the second time, between the second and the third time, before I, even before, when I sold the second time, I had hired, I had a whole executive staff that was supporting me. But by the time we, we got to the third sale, I had removed myself as CEO. And I even told the team, I said, look, if I'm not a C level, I shouldn't be at the executive meetings. It's just not right. So I basically became an active board member. And so when we sold the third time, the CEO of the, of the acquiring company came to me and said, David, what's your involvement in the business? I said, well, I don't go to executive meetings. I don't, you know, the only person who, no one reports to me. I mean, I, I talk to the CEO once a month about, but that's it. And so I was able to convincingly get them to buy the company without sort of requiring me to stick around afterwards. So yeah, I mean, there is a way, there's definitely a very clear path to being able to sell the business if you don't want to be part of it or if you're just tired of it, but you do have to sort of surround yourself with great people who are going to take on your responsibility to make that happen. Yeah. And, and I think the thing that I tend to see a lot is owners being stuck in the new business seat for way too long, even if they have dozens of employees and have been around for years. So can you talk about that a little bit? Why do you, th assuming you think that's true, why do you think that is? And how are you able to kind of get out of that new business role? And also what, at what stage were you able to do that? I mean, interestingly, business development is very different at different stages of a, of a company. So in the early days of the business, most of the referrals were friends of mine people in my network and they would come directly to me and I would call, I would talk to, like I said, the startup founder, I'd let the founder talk for 20 minutes about his or her challenges. 
take notes. And then I'd say, well, based on what I've heard, you should do A, B, C, D, and E. And usually I was right. And the founder would be like, okay, let's sign up. And in many cases, it would be a 30-minute phone call where we would close the deal within 24 hours. And I, I'm sure that we're not alone in this. I'm not sort of saying that we're special in any way. I think this is very common for early stage business agency business development. As we scaled, we started to take on bigger clients and, and much longer sales processes and a lot of RFPs and a lot of bake-offs and whatnot. And I actually had a conversation with our chief revenue officer that we hired. And I said to her, I said, look, get me in these meetings. I'll talk to them. I'll tell them how great we are. I'll tell them I'll, I can, I can be, I can do consultative sales. That's what I did. I would, I could listen to what their problems are and I'll tell them the answer. And I said, David, when you're dealing with a $500 million company, if the CEO is leading the sales call meeting, they're not going to take us seriously because they're going to assume that we're too small for them. You don't want the founder in there selling because it doesn't look like it's an enterprise business. So what she, what she said was, here's what we want you to do. We're going to be a meeting in the conference room. There's going to be 12 people in that meeting, six people from our team, six from their team. I just want you to come in, knock on the door and say, hey, I'm David. I'm the CEO. I just want to tell you how important it is that we win this business. We, are, we would love to work with you guys. I'm really busy. I got to go to the lunch with Google, but I just wanted to say, if you need anything, just reach out. <laughs> and so it was actually a pretty clever strategy. Now, the downside of that is when you have a professional sales team that tries to go in and close a startup, a Silicon Valley startup. They want that consultative sale from the expert and the professional sales team doesn't do that. So, you know, in some respects, we lost some business business that I would have won, but we also won a lot of big accounts that we could never have won if I was the one leading the business development. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And do you find that there's a way that you can have your cake and eat it too? And sometimes what we see clients do is they might have a sales team that, you know, has enough consultative chops or has a title that's non-sales related or something like that. Yeah. Almost everyone on our sales team had come from client services. So they were certainly very well qualified to speak strategically to clients. You know, the other thing that, that we, we tried to do, and I wouldn't say that we were, uh, that I was great at this, but we tried to do, uh, I think what we called multi-level sales. And that's not to be confused with multi-level marketing, which is a no, whole nother world. But yeah. essentially the idea would be the sales team, professional sales team is pitching to the day-to-day contacts, the, the people who are going to be making most of the decision. But that someone like myself, if I can get connected to the CEO or the CMO who's not involved in the day-to-day, but just have a CEO to CEO conversation and just say, again, exactly what I said before, like, our teams are working on this deal. I would love to work with you guys. I just want to let you know, if there's anything I can do, let me know. And so so that was a way to sort of still have me involved, but have professional salespeople involved. And, and as I said, the professional salespeople, they were all experts. They were not just going through a PowerPoint and didn't know what the terms they were talking about meant. I mean, they were, they could be sitting on the other side of the table making a decision as easily as, as selling. Yeah. It's almost like the CEO can be an arrow in their quiver as opposed to like, uh, you know, an ingrained part of the process. So that all makes sense to me. Um, one thing you talk a lot in the book is the the role of the the other parties surrounding a deal, whether it's, you know, an MA person, lawyers, et cetera, and how the incentives aren't always aligned. Can you talk about that a little? And and also with the knowledge that, you know, incentives could be misaligned, how do you decide on the right M&A person or lawyer or whoever else is involved? How do you select for the right person in that role? Yeah. I mean, typically in an M&A deal, especially one that's of scale, so say more than a $10 million transaction, you have an M&A attorney team and an M&A advisory team or investment bank team. And 
the job of the investment banker is to herd the cats, so to speak, of the, for the potential acquirers, but it also create a lot of froth and, and get people excited and get people to, to make the maximum bid possible. The job of the attorney is mostly to negotiate the deal to make sure that you don't get screwed after the deal is done. The incentive of the investment banker, if you want to be sort of crass about it, is to sell your business as quickly as possible for as much as possible. But that sometimes becomes a little bit of a conflict because uh, if you've read Freakonomics, you know, there's this whole study that real estate agents sell their houses for more than they sell your house because if the real estate agent sells your house for $10,000 more in terms of commission, they only get like 300 bucks out of that. So there's not a lot of incentive. But for them, if they sold their house, that's $9,700. It's a lot more. So the investment bankers sort of have a same scenario. For them, if you get to $50 million versus $50.2 million, the difference in their in their transactional fee is very little. But for you, you might be like, that's an extra $200,000. I, I think we should fight for that. So there's a ad- little bit of an adverse incentive there. They want to sell quickly. For the lawyers, lawyers get paid by the hour. And so you know, there are some law firms that I think intentionally or unintentionally you know, you get on a call with them and there's six lawyers on the call and they're all charging $800 an hour. And that's a $4,800 call that you just did. And so in some cases, you know, you kind of have to be a little bit vigilant to make sure that that there's not over-lawyering taking place. How do you combat these things? I mean, I think number one is to be very careful in interviewing all of your professionals that you're going to work with and, and just make sure that you really feel like they're good people who are going to take care of you. Talk to references, preferably references that have not been given to you by the professional, but people that you've networked through so that you can get a real honest opinion. With the law firm, I mean, I think a mistake that we made in one of our earlier deals was we were so focused on closing the deal that we weren't really paying attention to how they were billing us. And as, as, as a matter of fact, they weren't billing us. <laughs> they, they were just collecting hours. And then at the end of the transaction, they came to me and said, okay, well, the fee is $550,000. And I was like, I was thinking it was going to be closer to $250,000. What happened? And they said, well, number one, we raised our rates midway through. I was like, well, you didn't tell me that. And then we, you know, we just spent a lot of time in the deal. And so, you know, we negotiated and they gave me a little bit of a discount, but it was a huge mistake on my part to just sort of not pay attention to that. You know, there are things you can do with the investment bankers that, that, that play around with incentives. I mean, one of the things that a lot of people debate is giving investment bankers an added payment if they sell the business for significantly more than what you thought it was worth. So what might happen is they might say, well, if we sell the business for $50 million, we get 2% of that, which is a million dollars. However, anything that anything over $60 million, we get 2.5%. And if we get over $100 million, we get 3%. And so... I've never really believed in those incentives because at the end of the day, if you think about it, if you sell a business for 50 million at 2%, you get a million. If you sell for 100 million, you get 2 million. So there's still a million dollar incentive, regardless of whether you give people additional incentives there. But some people do that. And, you know, if you believe that people are incentivized to work harder, if there's more of a return, then that could be a strategy that you could, you could try. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And one thing that, that you talk about that I think was pretty poignant from the book is being in a group with with other business owners that it sold and how, let's just say it didn't pan out exactly the way they thought it would, or they, they had kind of mixed feelings about it. So can you talk about exit angst? Like, what is that? And how, how do you see that playing out? Yeah, that was a pretty fascinating meeting. I was in a meeting with about 15 other founders who had sold their business. One who had sold it for the most had sold for, I think, $3 billion and was feeling a lot of like, what do I do next? And I think one way to think about selling your business is you're selling, you may be selling your identity and your purpose for cash. And 
if you think about it that way, it can be a pretty jolting experience because if you've been running your business for a decade and everyone knows you as the founder of XYZ and, and vendors are taking you out for dinner and you're getting invited to rock concerts and you have all these employees who love you and you know, you're getting ranked on the Forbes 50 most influential agency owners or whatever. And all of a sudden you sell and you maybe you're not in charge anymore. Or maybe you're not even in the business anymore. That can be a big hole to fill. And I think, you know, for me, I realized like that I was kind of always very goal driven as a person in business and in life. I mean, I had, I had goals that I kept putting in front of myself. I said, Oh, I want to, you know, I want to graduate from college. Then I check. I want to go to law school. Check. I want to start a business. Check. I want to grow the business to at least $10 million. Check. I want to sell the business. Check. And I sort of got to the point where I sold the business. And then I was like, what do I do now? I mean, I'd kind of, in a way, I'd kind of been in the rat race and I was constantly, there's always some cheese right in front of me <laughs> for me to capture. But suddenly when the cheese wasn't there, then I started, it gave me this sort of existential crisis. Like, what's the, what is my point in life? What should I be doing now? How do I spend my time? And I think for some people, there are people who can be perfectly happy just doing nothing. You know, someone gives them a check for $5 million and they buy a beach house in, in Tampa Bay and they just water skiing every day. So. That's great. But for a lot of people, especially entrepreneurs who have always enjoyed sort of that challenge of growing something and, and winning despite other people saying that they didn't, they weren't going to make it, suddenly having nothing to do and having no purpose and identity can be very challenging. So I think it, it happened to me. It happens to a lot of people. I took about a year off and I just kind of recharged my batteries, did yoga for the first time, tried to just spend more time with the family and take the kids on vacation. And then after about a year and a half of that, I was like, okay, I, I no longer have any sort of remorse about not being in charge at 3Q, but I'm also kind of bored <laughs> with all I'm doing is yoga and family vacations. I need to do something more. So, so I sort of came out of that and now I'm sort of trying to figure out how to keep myself somewhat busy. Yeah, that's great. And I think there's a good segue kind of getting towards the end of our time. How are you working with, with agencies now and what sort of problems are you working through and how's that playing out? Yeah, so uh, the book's coming out uh, soon, or maybe it's already out, depending on when we release this. My thinking in writing the book and in and just sort of opening sort of an agency coaching business kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier, which is that we have when you sell your business, you have all these experts in the room: the investment bankers, the lawyers. Usually, the acquirers themselves are professional acquirers if they come from like a private equity firm or from a holding company, and the founder who is making a emotional and financial decision that's going to be the, one of the most important seminal decisions of their life is doing all of this for the first time and kind of has a one arm behind their back because they don't have ex expertise. So I always, I sort of realized after the fact, if founders could have someone who was outside of the investment bank and the lawyer who is just an impartial sort of a co-pilot to just run ideas off and look at contractual terms and look at the deal that you're making with the investment banker and whatnot, and just, just be someone to be the founder whisperer, if you will, it would save that founder a ton of, of time. Hopefully it would get them a better deal. And importantly, it would help them just sleep well at night, knowing that they're not making a, a horrible mistake in signing a particular document. So that's kind of what I've, what I've decided to start. I'm, I'm really just kind of trying to be someone that is going to be the, the helpful to founders and make sure that they can learn on my dime and hopefully get them a great deal and help them sleep easy when they sign the deal and then after the deal. 
Yeah, that, that's awesome. And, and with that in mind, uh, where can people go to learn more and get in touch and so on? Yeah, so they can reach out to me at my new email address, which is david at agentic shift, A-G-E-N-T-I-C-S-H-I-F-T dot com. We're working on a website, agenticshift.com, the website. And I'll be doing some, probably some YouTube videos with some instructional segments as well that will be coming soon. You can check out Search Agentic Shift on YouTube in a couple of months and it should be there. That's great. We'll get all that linked up and uh, hopefully do it again and kind of learn more about what you're seeing uh, based on working with clients and everything like that, David. So thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. It was fun. Thanks for listening to this episode. Again, today's episode was sponsored by our company, Sales Schema. Sales Schema helps agencies and B2B service companies build a reliable business development system through tasteful and targeted outreach. To learn more about us and check out our latest video training, again, you can go to saleschema.com slash take charge. Again, that's saleschema.com slash take charge.